Hi, you're listening to Delusional Optimism with Dr. B, where we explore human resiliency and learn how people thrive even after adversity. We break down the complexities of the human brain so concepts are simple and relatable. It's fun and empowering to understand how your earliest experiences influence your relationships today. What makes you tick? Dr. B is a speaker, trainer, and consultant who understands emotions and human development from the inside out. Let's dive into today's episode. Here's Dr. B. Hey everybody, it's Dr. B and we've got a two-part episode coming at you this round and it's called COVID Chaos, Anxiety, Depression, and Suicide During a Pandemic. Ugh, it's scary times we're living in and people are suffering from these things at just incredible rates. And we wanted to address some strategies for people to take care of themselves and take care of people they love. So some of the things that you're gonna learn in part one and part two are these. Suicide prevention is not prediction. We gotta get that cleared up. Also, building real support systems. We all hear do yoga, breathe, listen to music, but. We need some, those are great, all great, but we've also added some other support systems to take care of yourself and people you love. Last but not least, how to disrupt anxiety and depression. Anxiety and depression have just skyrocketed during this global pandemic of COVID-19. And we can trick our brain to pull us out of anxiety if we know how to. Alrighty, so good morning, everybody. Again, I'm Dr. B. It's so fabulous to be here with you on a Tuesday morning. This is a free live webinar called COVID-19 Chaos, Anxiety, Depression, and Suicide During a Pandemic. We all know this is unprecedented times for us. I wanted to give you a few updates. We are going to be providing one free live one hour webinar every month, the last Tuesday of every month. So October 26th, November 30th, December, we're gonna take a holiday break for self-care. So there will not be one in December. And then we will be back on track January 25th. We do this because not because somebody else in the wings are paying us to do it, but because we very much care about giving back to our community and to sharing information with people. So we appreciate you taking time and spending time with us this morning, and we hope to make it worth your while. I think for sure we will. We are booking live events for 2022. We do all of our work together. Melissa, you can't see her, but she is fabulously amazing, and I couldn't do this work without her. So when you you might hear her voice, that's Melissa Morrison, and she is just awesome. She is also in the mental health field. She has a master's in clinical social work, so she is also a trauma-informed, experienced person. So this isn't just a one, one and done for her. <clears throat> We 
We'll be, like I said, booking live events and virtual events and projects and consulting and all of those things in 2022. When we book up, then we set up a waiting list. So if you want to be on that or if you're interested in talking through a project that you're thinking about for 2022, please get a hold of Melissa or I and um, we can talk that through for your organization or business because this is the future for sure. We always work directly with our clients. That's it. We don't train the trainer. We don't do other, you know, send somebody out to work with you. We only book enough. We only book events that Melissa and I can be at, or we can bring a team in to do the work because the work has to really be done by somebody who's had experience in this field for a long time. And I've been working in trauma-informed care and around ACEs and early childhood and clinical psych for decades. So we believe that it's very important to have strong footing in the field in order to do this work. So we do it personally and in a very connected way. So also on-demand classes in the Leave a Life Print Academy that you logged into to get into this class will have CEUs attached to them for all different sorts of fields. So attorneys, doctors, nurses, teachers, even auto mechanics, <laughs> if they want to, uh, will have CEUs provided by um, an international accrediting agency in the fall and then moving forward 2022. So that that's going to be coming down the pike. Also, please follow us on social media or on from the website. You can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, the whole gang. And so with that, let's get started. We have some questions at the end of this presentation that people had sent in early and I will be addressing those specific questions. Some of the questions were integrated into the presentation, so we didn't pull those out specifically. But with that, thank you all for being here. I so appreciate you taking the time to spend with us. So let's get started. COVID-19 chaos, we all know we're in the middle of some chaos. Anxiety, depression, suicide during a pandemic. All right, so here's the agenda. This is just the tip of the iceberg. We have about 45 minutes before questions to talk about something that we could literally talk about for at least, you know, 25 hours straight. So we're just, we're not going to get everything covered in this 40 minutes, but we are going to hopefully, you're going to get new information that you've never heard before. So we're going to talk about pandemic history in general. We're going to talk about anxiety, depression, and suicide from definitely a clinical perspective as well as, well, a clinical perspective and um, overall mental health perspective. And we're going to talk about adverse childhood experiences and trauma and questions and answers at the end. Oh, this beautiful, beautiful image. It really is so beautiful considering it's so awful. COVID-19 chaos 2021 started in 2020, probably actually started before that, but we won't know that for a while. 
This is an unprecedented global pandemic. We've never experienced a pandemic like this before in most of our lifetimes or in all of our lifetimes, let's be honest, who was really around in before 1918. It is going to create a new normal. There is no way around it. We are not going back to the old way of doing anything. We're not going back to the old way of interacting in our communities, and we're not going back to the office in the way we did ever before in the future. Some things, restaurants will be different. Everything is going to be different. And think about it. Masks, vaccines, social distancing, and quarantine. Things we didn't talk about in 2017 are now things that we talk about on a daily basis in 2021 and certainly in 2020. And not only do we talk about it, we fight about it, we yell about it, we cry about it, we worry about it, and we have anxiety and depression about it. So all because of this little, lovely, beautiful little virus that is killing us. All right, so let's talk about pandemics because we really have to understand the science and the and pandemics in order to understand how this pandemic is affecting all of us in relation to anxiety, depression, and suicide. So COVID-19 is in its fifth wave. So it's already changed several times. The Delta variant, which is the one that we're pretty much is on the forefront of our lens at the moment, carries 1,000 times more virus than the original virus when we first started hearing about, oh, this, you know, COVID-19 thing, this is in our in our universe. I was watching a show last night and it kept going through this. It was actually Lula. It was about Lula, Lula Rich. It was a documentary and they were talking about, you know, at the beginning, oh, there were only three distributors of LuLaRoe and then there were 50 and then there were 100. And I said, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm watching COVID-19 like numbers just escalate. And sure enough, that is exactly what it felt like as I watched that that show, because that's really how it happened. Globally, there are right now today close to 229 million cases, confirmed cases of COVID-19. So that's active cases. And if you know anything about transmission infection rates, it's it's a lot like kitty litters, you know, one person can infect a whole lot of people, just like one male cat can impregnate a whole lot of, of unspayed cats. So the numbers grow exponentially. They don't just grow one at a time. So these are very scary numbers and we need to pay attention, which we are. In the U.S. alone, almost 42 million cases are confirmed as of today. So, again, same thing. We, we're in a we're in a crisis still. So let's talk about the Spanish flu for a minute. It started in Kansas. It is not really a Spanish flu. The King of Spain got sick. And since Spain was neutral in World War I, the U.S. was annoyed, so leaders called it the Spanish flu instead of the Kansas flu. So what's important to recognize here is with the right story, 
and consistent marketing, misinformation spreads as truth very quickly. It's our responsibility in order to manage our anxiety and to manage our depression and to, to manage people's overwhelming feelings of, I can't get through this, which caused them to attempt or complete suicide, comes from a lot of misinformation. So I just want to put that out there because I am a scientist, I'm a believer in the science, and we need to follow the facts, not social media, even though I definitely sent you to social media, but it's your responsibility and my responsibility as individual citizens to follow the science. The flu, the Spanish flu hit so fast in a remote Canadian city that only had 266 people in this whole population, 200 of the citizens died. And starving animals began to invade homes, eating living and dead residents. So just think of that as a small microcosm of what a pandemic can do. It literally can eradicate a community Let's, it can eradicate a family. Certainly, we've watched that on the news. And it can really wreak havoc on our society and throw us into a whirlwind of unknowns. So you may or may not know that smallpox, there was an outbreak of smallpox in 1972. If you're over 50 years old, you probably have a smallpox vaccine scar on your shoulder because smallpox did take the life of many, many people globally. I happen to have a smallpox vaccine scar. But in Yugoslavia, there was an outbreak of smallpox. And because it was under a totalitarian regime by Josef Tito, he ordered a national quarantine. He ordered 20 million people to be vaccinated. They didn't have a choice, they just vaccinated them. And he literally locked up 10,000 people who had been exposed. They weren't infected, but they were exposed to smallpox. And, and they were locked up for weeks and months. Of the 174 people who ended up with smallpox infection, 34 of them died. So here's our balance. We live in a free country. We want to do what we want to do under our own decision-making power. Understood, so do I. I don't wanna live under a totalitarian regime. At the same time, this was a very effective way to stop a, a sickness, a disease in its tracks. And today, smallpox does not exist. It's eradicated in the entire world. So, there are nobody's going to get smallpox ever again. So it, there, there are some powerful reasons why there's such an insistence around vaccines and all the things, masking, social distancing, and and other protective factors, quarantining. Let's talk about AIDS for a second. We all think, you know, patient zero was a flight attendant flying around. He was gay. He was having sex with everybody, you know, in all these countries. And that's how AIDS started and was spread. No, actually, it was not true. It was the first person that we have in 
known case was actually a teenager who died in St. Louis, Missouri in 1969. He died of the AIDS virus. We allowed politics and social bias against the LGBT community to interfere with our science of treatment. We needed to research, we needed to get the word out, we needed to put in protective measures so we could slow the spread of AIDS. And now today we still have, our AIDS epidemic is under control because we now have medications and cocktails to manage it as a chronic disease. However, it killed millions and millions of people and we probably could have stopped that had we not allowed it to become so political. Let's get into the mental health side of all of this because a pandemic creates uncertainty because none of us have ever lived through a pandemic. We don't have a plan necessarily, particularly on an individual level or on a business or organizational level to manage something as big as a worldwide pandemic that changes everything we do. And neurobiology is the brain is in service of survival. It lives to protect us and to keep us alive. So interestingly and scientifically, the brain would prefer to experience pain. So pain, pinch your finger, pinch or pinch your hand. Then it, it does to experience uncertainty or unknowns. Well, pandemics are full of unknowns and pain is easier to cope with if you know what to expect because your brain can load up and prep for that experience of pain and it makes it manageable. They've actually done research on this and they've said, okay, you're either going to have this pain, we're going to give you a painful poke, or this other group said, yeah, we might give you a poke or we might not. And then they measured the level of anxiety between the two groups. Well, guess what? You would think the group that had was all, they were all going to get the poke would be more anxious because they're all going to get poked. And in reality, the group that had the unknown factor was way, way more anxious because they didn't know. So they didn't know what to expect. So they couldn't prepare and cope with that expectation. The brain would rather experience pain than sit with an unknown for any amount of time. This is where the chaos in the title comes in because pandemics are just loaded with unknowns and things are changing on a daily basis constantly. So remember that. Because being aware of that fact really helps people to manage anxiety. Like, I'm in an unknown situation. I'm feeling anxious. That's okay. That's a normal way to feel when I don't know what to expect. So we don't have to beat ourselves up over our anxiety when we're facing an unknown because that is the brain working properly. Anxiety by definition means excessive fear, worry, avoidance of emotional distress. Nobody wants to feel anxiety. Like nobody wants to have that experience. It's miserable to be 
anxious and to have anxiety, especially at really high levels, including like a panic attack. But it's excessive fear, it's worry, it's avoidance of emotional distress. However, it is necessary because if we didn't experience some level of anxiety every single day, you wouldn't even get out of bed. It'd be like, eh, what's the big deal? Like, I don't need to worry about it. Nothing's going to happen. So anxiety is actually a motivator and a mover and shaker of our lives. Like it gets us going. So remember, the brain is in service of survival and the brain does not like unknowns. So anxiety is a natural response to the unknown because it heightens our alert system to say, eh, you better be careful. We don't know what's out there. We don't know what's going to happen. So you need to be on a heightened alert in order to protect yourself and your people. So all kinds of things cause us to have anxiety. Financial issues cause us to have anxiety. Medical issues cause us to have anxiety. Housing issues. All sorts of things that you know we don't know about cause us to have anxiety for the exact reason that we don't know about them. Once we know about them, we feel better about it. So anxiety is a natural response to stress. And interestingly, the evolution of the brain hasn't really kept up with our neurobiological need in terms of managing anxiety because there used to be, think hunter and gatherer days, a lot more things in the environment that would be deadly or cause harm so the brain had to constantly be on high alert. Well, now the brain doesn't have to be on as much high alert, but it hasn't settled down enough on an evolutionary level to not react to every single little thing that we don't know or don't understand. So anxiety disorders are due to neural networking, not brain structure. You're not born with anxiety. Your brain wires where it fires, and one of the places the brain fires a lot is when we're experiencing unknowns and anxiety. And so we set those patterns up in, a, in the wiring part of our brain because we're firing in anxiety, which is triggered by unknowns, unexpecteds, and surprises. So let's talk about anxiety a little bit more. Look at this picture at the bottom of the page and think about what you see. This is sort of an exercise that you can do with yourself or with children. I'm a big gigantic believer in adults scaffolding for children. What does that mean? Scaffolding means that we provide the supports and the information in order for them to understand complicated situations so they don't have to be afraid of the unknown. They can understand it at a developmental level and then they're not gonna grow up and have generalized anxiety disorder or be anxious about things because they didn't learn about them until they were adults after the wiring and the firing patterns have already set a neural pathway in their brain. One of the things we can do is with, ki with kids or with ourselves as adults and other adults is to do neuro engagement activities. 
So when you're feeling anxious and and having anxiety, one of the things that you can do to counter some of that and to reduce those feelings of anxiety, you won't want to because we want to we get anxious and we don't want to do anything. It's like we're paralyzed and we're frozen. But if you can force yourself to do something like a neuroengagement activity where you're looking at a picture and you see like I see an older couple But then Melissa said yesterday, well, don't you see the guy playing a guitar? And I was like, oh, wait, oh yeah. And the woman, oh yeah, I do, okay. So then it, you know, it's a dual picture. It's got multiple things going on in this this portrait. And so that requires my brain to pull away from the anxiety and focus in on other things. It's multitasking. So. What we want to do is pull your brain or somebody's brain off of their anxiety track and onto a, wait a second, what am I seeing in that picture? What are all the things? Are there other things? And it forces the brain to jump to different pathways and allows the anxiety wiring to subside a little bit, at least in order to start to get some more coping mechanisms on board. So the other thing is, and if you know me, and now you do know me, so you know I'm a lifelong surfer. I've surfed my whole life since I was about 11, 11, 12, and I learned to surf. I never surf waves this big, but I love to watch people surf waves this big, but I've surfed some pretty big waves in my life. So surfing is one of those things, and this is my I look back on my life now, and particularly when I was surfing at least once a day, often twice a day, as a, as a young kid and an early teenager, I would surf before school, after school, and sitting in the ocean, a natural environment. We know 15 minutes in nature actually changes the brain, and it's calming. So getting outside, getting in nature somehow is a strategy for reducing anxiety. But what the thing about surfing is, and there's a lot of other activities that I'm gonna share with you in a sec, that surfing for me, you have to sit on a board and you have to wait for sets to come in. So you're watching the pattern of the water moving forward and you're paying attention to how that wave in particular is going to break and making a decision if you're going to paddle for that wave and which direction you're going to go. These are all really critical things that occupy your brain. Somebody's um, mic is on, so could you do a double check? So what happens is your brain has to focus on these other things so it doesn't have the ability to sit in the ocean waiting to surf and think about things like ACEs, adverse childhood experiences that may or may not be going on in your house or your family or to you, you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse, physical neglect, emotional neglect, parents getting a divorce or the abandonment of a parent or being raised by a caregiver who struggles with mental health issues or being raised by a parent who struggles with alcohol or drug addiction or misuse, witnessing a parent, a mother being treated violently or somebody that you love being treated violently. All of these things that impact people's lives long-term and correlate directly with anxiety, depression, and suicide, 
are difficult to focus on when we are in an engaged activity. So think about, it seems so simple, but knitting, I say surfing, playing a sport, basketball, soccer, tennis, golf, I don't know, things, doing art, doing ceramics, doing um, any sort of expressive theater, all kind. There's a, there's a, so many different things, but when you think about your brain being able to do two things at the same time, it's really hard to have a panic attack and be surfing at the same time, or really hard to have a panic attack and be painting a lovely picture. Okay, so let's shift from anxiety to depression. I want you to remember this. Anxiety and depression are the best of best of friends. They usually hang out together. So anxiety starts the party and depression ends the party. So anxiety is very active and depression is very, I wouldn't say passive, but it's, it's, it's a different level of activation in the brain. So it's a common and serious medical condition. Symptoms can be mild to severe. Depression causes feelings of sadness, loss of interest, lack of purpose, feelings of worthlessness, and difficulty concentrating. I cannot tell you how often I hear people say some version of I'm worthless. And even for myself, it's part of my own affirmation mantra, you know, I am worthy, I am safe, I am loved. That's my mantra. That's like my thing that I say to myself on a regular basis in order to continue that neural neural connection in my brain to remind me always that I am safe, I am loved, and I am worthy. And you might think, oh my gosh, she really needs to do that. Yeah, I really do. Because I am a person with adverse childhood experiences, just like a lot of people. So, but we can heal and we can overcome our traumas and then change the trajectory of other people's lives. And that's what's so cool. But we have to work at it. We have to understand the science in order to make those changes globally on a community level, on a family level, and particularly on a personal level. Back to depression. So LGBTQ youth are twice as likely to experience depression than straight youth. So 61% of LGBTQ youth versus 29% of straight identifying youth or heterosexual identifying youth experience depression. That's an astounding difference. And I will say, if you're a person who says things like love the sinner, hate the sin, or, you know, are rejecting in any way of this particular population, that part of this, this is why LGBT youth suffer from depression. So I don't have a lot of patience for folks who work with youth who identify as LGBTQ+, who also want to change who they are fundamentally. Because when we understand the science around LGBTQ youth and gender identity and differences, then we understand this is not a choice, this is not an option, this is not a fad, this is reality. So... Other things that contribute to depression, there's a direct correlation between adverse childhood experiences 
and depression. So the higher the number of ACEs, the more likely to suffer from depression. Having coping strategies or lack of coping strategies lead to depression. When you can do something about something, you're less likely to be depressed about it than when you feel like you are unable to get away from it. But having poor social supports, okay, COVID-19 or any pandemic interferes with our social support system and then that can also lead to depression. And there are some genetic and biological contributions and factors, particularly epigenetic contributions and factors. So if you're a parent or your grandparent suffered a lot of trauma, this is a whole other episode, super interesting though, that trauma can genetically be passed to generations after that person's after that person's life. So my trauma can be genetically, not just socially transmitted to my children, but genetically transmitted based on expression and non-expression of genes. All right, depression, what helps? Connectedness helps. We say that word, we use that word, but we don't implement that word very well all the time. Connectedness means being able to have, I'm going to say, intimate conversations with people so that we feel like we have a shared experience and you can understand my story and I can understand your story. Because when we can understand each other's story, we can become emotionally connected. And that requires time and energy and investment. So there was some research done on schools and schools that invest in high connectivity between students, teachers, staff, and you know everybody at the school. High connection schools, 20% of students identify as depressed. In low connected schools, half of those students, half of the students at the school identify and meet the criteria for depression. That is unacceptable and, and frankly, just a waste of all of our money in terms of education. We should not be sending our kids to school depressed because they can't, depressed and not dealing with depression on a very, very crisis serious level because you can't learn anything when you are in a clinical depressed state. So we have to really think, when I said things are not going back to quote unquote normal, this is one of those places. School is not going to be normal. We have to begin to focus on mental health issues in the classroom because that's how people actually become educated and learn new things is when they aren't depressed. So we need to be comfortable talking about things that are uncomfortable, like trauma, like sexual abuse. Nobody wants to talk about sexual abuse, but guess what? If we don't talk about sexual abuse, sexual abuse, one, continues to happen. Two, continues to make people feel shame who have been perpetrated on or violated by sexual abuse. And the reality is one in three women are sexually abused, and I think the number for men is one in four. So if not one in four, it's one in five. It's very close. So we have to be talking about these things. 
teaching coping strategies. Nothing is more important in life and building resilience and strength of character and community than teaching people purposeful coping strategies. What do you do when you run into a problem? Do you scream at people and throw things and stomp on the floor and cry? No. We say, okay, take some deep breaths. Okay, let's first get ourselves emotionally grounded and then let's have a conversation. Or let's, you know, first find our common ground. Where's our common ground? And then let's have a conversation about, you know, where do we differ and how can we find a respectful place to have a conversation? You know, coping strategies are, you know, what are you going to do if they're out of celery at the grocery store and the recipe that you're planning to cook requires celery? Okay, you use a different vegetable or you leave it out. That's a coping strategy. But sometimes that simple problem can cause people to collapse. Now I can't make what I was planning to make and now I don't know what to make and now I'm and now I'm lost and I can't make dinner and I have to do I have to buy dinner out and I don't have enough money and you can see how the wheels spin and we go down into the tunnel of depression. We have to have schools where mental health is more of a priority than educational outcomes because mental health is part of educational outcomes. We will have better educational outcomes when we focus on mental health. And last but not least, parenting supports. Most parents are young when they are parents. Like that just is the way the world works. They're, you know, you are more stable, you're more financially secure, you're more educated when you're older and hopefully. So what we need to be thinking about is flipping things and providing, getting over this, you know, blame game about, oh, well, you're young and you have kids, so we're not going to help you because you made your choice. And instead think, you know what? It's a good investment for me to invest in everybody's children because everybody's children make up my community. Everybody's children make up the world that my granddaughter lives in. Everybody's children make up the world that's going to have more children and continue the world growing in a positive way. So I am fully invested in everybody's children, not just my own. And so I want young parents to have supports and their needs met so they can then meet the needs of their children. And really overcoming anxiety, depression, and suicide live in early childhood. And we can't capture that period of life unless we partner and embrace and support our young parents. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I appreciate the opportunity to connect with you. If you're interested in booking a training, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at my website, Dr. B Connections. There's a big button that says, book a training with Dr. B. It's that easy. If this show has been beneficial for you, please share it with your friends and family. Spreading the word about the show helps us grow our audience and helps continue to change the world together. Again, thanks so much for listening to Delusional Optimism. Now, go leave a life friend.
all content on delusional optimism is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice and does not establish any kind of patient-client relationship. A patient-client relationship is only formed through a written contractual agreement. If you need medical or mental health care advice, you should consult your doctor or therapist or go to your nearest hospital.